You're listening to the RBN Energy Blogcast. This is an audio version of RBN Energy's daily blog, the oil and gas industry's go-to source for insight. Every day, we cover commodity fundamentals, industry changes, and developing trends across energy markets. And now, we're making it easier than ever to enjoy our blogs. Whether it's on your drive into work, while you're at the office, or at home walking the dog, settle in, turn the volume up, and enjoy. Tuesday, March 10, 2020. Tortoise and the Hare. U.S. Shale and Canadian Oil Sands Production in a Cheap Crude World. Published by Bob Tippy. It's a new world, folks. The Saudis and Russians, who until a few days ago had been trying to prop up crude oil prices through supply management, are now engaged in an all-out war for market share. Crude oil prices are sharply lower. Three weeks ago, West Texas Intermediate was selling for $53 per barrel and Western Canadian Select for $37 per barrel, Yesterday you were selling for about $34 per barrel and $22 per barrel, respectively. And things may get worse. All this has profound implications for North American production, but the effects on production in U.S. shale plays versus the Canadian oil sands will be very different. Today we explain how the oil sands provide steady as she goes baseload supply through pricing peaks and valleys while U.S. shale plays serve as a global swing supplier. The crude oil market gyrations of the past few days have left the energy industry shell-shocked, and for good reason. It's been years since we've seen anything close to the once unthinkable confluence of events that has dragged down oil prices. A coronavirus pandemic that is now affecting more than 100 countries, including the US and Canada, and crippling global oil demand. The utter collapse of a fragile but effective coalition of OPEC and non-OPEC producers, including Russia that for more than three years had held crude supply in check to keep prices from tumbling. And then there's the stock market whose free fall in recent days has left a long list of North American exploration and production companies, or E&Ps, in a financially precarious state. This got us thinking about the challenges that U.S. shale and Canadian oil sands producers will be facing, particularly if crude oil prices stay low for a long time. The ups and downs of shale plays in the oil sands have been frequent topics in the RBN blogosphere. In our new Dakota series for example, we've been discussing how gathering system development has been sustaining an oil production resurgence in the Bakken shale. On the downside, we discussed slumping activity and production in the scoop and stack plays of Oklahoma and our blog broke down engine. For the oil sands, there's been more down than up since the crude oil price slump of 2014-16 as we noted in several series such as The Thrill is Gone, although bitumen production keeps rising. And in our series Everybody Wants to Rule the World, we covered the competitive strain that rising non-OPEC production had been putting on OPEC and its supply management collaborators. The news keeps coming of course. As we said in Wipeout a couple of days ago, an effort led by Saudi Arabia to further reduce crude oil production by members of the OPEC Plus coalition collapsed when Russia failed to sign on. The Saudis then announced a huge increase their own production and slashed the price they charge for their oil. Global crude oil prices plummeted. Now Russia is reportedly considering again opening talks with the Saudis. Shale plays and the oil sands don't just contribute powerfully to growth in non-OPEC production. They also, in their own ways, change how non-OPEC supply behaves during market swings. So what does all this volatility and uncertainty mean for U.S. shale producers and oil sands producers up in Alberta? To answer that, we need to remember what shale plays and the oil sands have in common and, maybe more importantly, how they differ. First, the commonalities. Shales and oil sands are both unconventional resources, meaning they require high inputs of energy to coax hydrocarbons out of the subsurface rock layers, or reservoirs, in which they occur. Oil and bitumen, in the case of the oil sands, in most unconventional reservoirs is stuck where it originated, in what geologists call the source rock. 
in sharp contrast, most conventional oil occurs away from, nearly always above, its source rock. After escaping its origins, conventional oil migrates upward until it encounters impermeable rock layers that halt its movement. The porous rock layers holding hydrocarbons immobilized by these geologic traps are conventional reservoirs. The amount of fluid that a conventional reservoir can hold is limited by the volume of potentially hydrocarbon-bearing rock beneath the trap. Unconventional reservoirs have no such limits, they're said to be continuous, meaning that their ability to contain hydrocarbons can extend as broadly as the rock layers themselves. Compared with conventional reservoirs, unconventional reservoirs can contain many times the volumes of oil and gas. And they don't need to be discovered by the likes of Tom Slick, King of the Wildcatters, and Jed Clampett. Oil and gas companies mostly know where the hydrocarbons are and don't need to spend as much money and time exploring for them. Shales and oil sands share these very important qualities, and one more, establishing production from unconventional reservoirs is a lot harder than starting flow from the conventional kind. Production methods differ greatly between shales and oil sands however, and the difference relates to why oil won't leave the source rock on its own. Shale rock is a fine-grained sedimentary rock with low porosity that keeps hydrocarbons tightly trapped. To extract those resources requires a combination of horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing, things producers have become remarkably proficient in over the past few years. In contrast, oil sands are loose mixtures of sand, clay and water clung to by viscous petroleum. To produce bitumen from oil sands, operators either must mine the stuff, if it's near the surface, or heat it, usually with steam injected into the reservoir, to lower its resistance to flow. And there's the black and white difference between the generally light or very light oil that shale wells generate and the heavy, high sulfur bitumen that oil sands operations produce. And, once bitumen reaches the surface, it needs processing to make it able to flow in pipelines or into rail cars. Most mined bitumen is upgraded, with refinery-like processes near the mine, into synthetic crude oil. Bitumen produced with steam injection, typically referred to as thermal or in situ, is usually lightened through blending with condensate or some other light hydrocarbon. Because of these and other differences in geology and fluid characteristics, shale oil and oil sands bitumen have production patterns that differ sharply not only between themselves but also with conventional oil. A typical conventional oil well starts producing at a relatively high rate that rises over a period of months or, in some cases, years until it reaches a plateau rate, where it often stays for years before entering a natural decline as reservoir pressures fall and producible volumes shrink. Production from shales or other tight oil formations hydraulically fractured in horizontal wells behaves much differently. It typically jumps quickly to high initial production or IP rates and soon begins a relatively steep decline that eventually flattens at levels well below the early rates. As for production profiles in the oil sands, once either a mining or an in-situ operation is up and running and achieving its target production rate, it can maintain output at near the same level for 25 to 40 years or as long as mining or steaming continue. These contrasting, atypical decline rates, fast for shale and near zero for the oil sands, are what give these unconventional resources influence beyond their production levels and global oil markets vitally important non-OPEC supply component. In essence, oil sands production amounts to baseload oil supply. Although investment in the oil sands has plunged and most non-Canadian operators have departed the market in recent years, bitumen production is rising and is expected to keep doing so. The Canadian Energy Research Institute or CERI estimates that total oil sands capital investment peaked at 33.9 billion Canadian dollars in 2014 and fell to 13 billion Canadian dollars in 2018 before recovering slightly to 15.3 billion Canadian dollars last year. We only need to look back a couple of weeks for an illustration of how tough the investment environment is for entirely new greenfield oil sands projects.
On February 23, 2020, Tech Resources withdrew its plan to invest 15.5 billion Canadian dollars in its frontier mine in Alberta, which was to have produced as much as 260,000 barrels per day of bitumen for decades to come. But even with a lower level of investment, the Canada Energy Regulator or CER, successor to the old National Energy Board or NEB, forecasted before the recent price plunge, that oil sands production would increase from to 3.3 million barrels per day this year and nearly 4.0 million barrels per day by 2030. Most of the projected increase would come from project expansions, which would add to production from existing operations that don't decline. New greenfield projects wouldn't begin contributing to oil sands production until about 2025, and even then, they'd be unlikely to contribute much. Operators can expand thermal projects much more cheaply than they can build new ones by adding phases that make use of existing equipment and surface preparation. They also can apply new technology and reservoir knowledge gained from early production to lower the operating costs of follow-on phases. And once they start steaming a thermal phase or open a mine, their costs are mostly sunk. So they're very unlikely to halt production even when prices tumble. Shale oil production, on the other hand, can be hypersensitive to the price of crude, because of the characteristically steep IP rate declines we mentioned earlier, a shale play needs near-continuous drilling simply to keep production from falling. But drilling economics are heavily dependent on crude prices. When prices fall as they have in spectacular fashion the past two weeks, drilling subsides, and high shale well decline rates at existing wells drive overall shale production down, with a lag of only a few months, taking total U.S. oil output with it. Drilling has already been slumping, from a recent high of as many as 1,060 active rigs in the fall of 2018 after WTI prices topped the $70 per barrel mark, the Baker Hughes land rig count has fallen to as low as 760 in the past few weeks as once brisk drilling and completion activity eases in shale plays, in part because of the slide in crude oil prices. Expect the rig count to fall by a lot more when the latest price plunge is factored in. Production in shale plays can recover quickly, though. As we said, operators know where the oil shales are, they don't have to spend time looking for them. Given the proper incentive, namely, higher prices, shale operators with capital to invest respond by drilling and completing wells, with the shale wells high IP rates, while production can snap back. We saw this after the industry slowdown of 2015 to 2016, when the weekly land rig count fell from 1,876 at times in the fall of 2014 to as low as 380 in May 2016. U.S. crude production, about half of its shale-tight oil plays, crested at 9.7 million barrels per day in April 2015, before following the rig count down, bottoming out at 8.5 million barrels per day. Then a rebound in prices sent U.S. production soaring, it's now up about 4 million barrels per day in the past three and a half years. In effect, producers in the Permian, the Balkan, the Denver-Julesburg or DJ Basin and other U.S. shale plays have become the world's swing producers, able to quickly ramp up, or ratchet down, their crude oil output as demand and pricing warrant. This isn't a brand new phenomenon, we discussed it in depth and got that swing in mid-2018, when we said that U.S. producers, with their enhanced ability to quickly respond to price signals, now provide a market-based balancing mechanism that the global market has not enjoyed in decades, if ever. Still, there are reasons to think that shale oil production might not bounce back that quickly when the crude price recovers from its current, steep decline. For many independent operators, drilling capital is a lot more difficult to raise now than it was even in the depths of 2016 they'll have to drill more cautiously than some might have done in the last shale rebound. And a continuing worry is the quality of remaining drilling targets after years of concentration on so-called sweet spots. Yet drilling efficiency continues to improve. 
the EIA estimates new well production per rig in tight oil plays averaged 835 barrels per day in February. That's almost 50% better than in May 2016. And since 2016, major oil companies, including ExxonMobil, Chevron, Shell and BP, have moved strongly into shale plays, especially the Permian Basin. Growing participation by the majors in shale plays, in fact, is likely to enhance shale oil's role as a supply modulating mechanism working without collaboration among producers. They fund drilling internally and can start and stop shale drilling readily in response to changing financial incentives, raising and lowering production as a result. For example, ExxonMobil told investors late last week that it will trim the number of rigs working on its Permian acreage by 20% this year in a move that lowers the company's expected production from the region to 600,000 barrels per day in 2023, about 10% below earlier guidance. For the majors, shale adds optionality to production portfolios that otherwise have projects with longer investment cycles and therefore much less flexibility, such as those in the offshore Gulf of Mexico. While oil production from shale can respond as crude prices fluctuate, bitumen output from the oil sands plods forward, like a hare and a tortoise, one is a price-sensitive supply regulator and the other is a steady baseload supplier. To the competitive force of non-OPEC supply, while from unconventional resources thus provides more than volume. The hair enhances elasticity, and the tortoise adds momentum. All of this comes as little consolation, of course, to producers in U.S. shale plays and the Canadian oil sands, all of which will need to slog their way through another period of low crude oil prices. The good news is that the strongest ENPs, which fully considered high-price and low-price scenarios in their planning, will find ways to survive the current crisis and eventually thrive when prices rebound. Tortoise and the Hare was written by John Lodge, and appears as the sixth song of Side One on the Moody Blues' sixth studio album, A Question of Balance. The song is based around the Aesop's fable of the tortoise and the hare, and how being slow and steady, rather than being quick and careless, can win the race. A Question of Balance was recorded between January and June 1970 at Decca Studios in West Hampstead, London. Produced by Tony Clark, the album featured a more streamlined sound that differed from the band's usual lush, orchestrated and psychedelic oral landscape. This would enable the band to perform the songs live like you heard them on the album. Released in August 1970, the album went to number 3 on the Billboard Top 200 Albums chart. Personnel on the record were, Justin Hayward, on vocals, acoustic and electric guitars, and mandolin John Lodge, on vocals and bass, Ray Thomas, on vocals, flute, and tambourine Graham Edge, on drums and percussion, and Mike Pender on vocals, Mellotron synthesizer, piano harpsichord maracas, and acoustic guitar. The Moody Blues are an English rock band formed in Birmingham, England in 1964. The band first came to prominence playing rhythm and blues music. Their first hit single, Go Now, featured Denny Lane on lead vocals and guitar. It would reach number 10 on the Billboard Hot 100 Singles chart in February 1965. The song featured one of the first promotional films of a song in the British Invasion era. The film was directed and produced by the band's co-manager, Alex Wharton. Denny Lane would later leave the Moody Blues and join Paul McCartney's Wings Band. Wings live concerts would often feature Lane singing Go Now in a segment of the show. Justin Hayward replaced Lane and John Lodge came aboard as bassist shortly thereafter, solidifying the lineup that would be the most popular of the band between 1967 and 1972. The Moody Blues have released 16 studio albums, 6 live albums, 24 compilation albums and 36 singles. They are members of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and the Vocal Group Hall of Fame. Ray Thomas died in January 2018. Long-term members Graham Edge, Justin Hayward and John Lodge still occasionally tour as the Moody Blues. Lodge is currently on a solo tour, which features Moody Blues songs, 
and Hayward will start a similar solo tour beginning in April. This has been the RBN Energy Blogcast. Thanks for listening.